Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 9. If you've been with us, you know we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke, uh, as one person said a couple of weeks ago, uh, painfully slowly. Um, I think that was a compliment. I didn't ask, but I just pretended it was. So Luke chapter 9, if you don't have a Bible, there's one beneath the seat in front of you, or you can follow along on your device. Uh, We're looking at a story that's one of those you come across and it's easily forgettable, because it almost just seems like a quick throwaway detail in between two larger stories. But I want to consider what it might be saying to us today. So with that said, Luke 9 verse 1. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed, because some were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see them. Now, if you've been with us or you've ever read through the Gospel of Luke, you know that Jesus, right up until this point, pretty much, has really been on the go. I mean, he's been walking everywhere. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been raising the dead. He's been sailing around. He's been calming storms. And one thing we know is that his disciples were with him the whole time, which isn't surprising in that context because in first century Israel, If you were a student, you would always go wherever your rabbi or teacher went. Now, the word disciple is just kind of a fancy word, or actually it's the Greek word for student. But students back then did not learn the way students learn today. You know how it is today. You're in a classroom and you sit and listen to a lecture. You have to write papers. 
Who am I kidding? We're not writing papers anymore. We have chat GPT. <laughs> Terrifying. Uh, you have to take tests, and it's all kind of knowledge-based. But in the first century, you would actually walk around with your rabbi. You would watch how they interacted with people. You would listen to their teachings. You would get into questioning one another and your teacher. You would begin to take on their characteristics. Your whole goal was to become like your rabbi in the way they lived their life. This is what the disciples were doing when they're walking around with Jesus. Now, I don't know how you picture the disciples, if you've ever actually taken time to picture the disciples. If you've ever really watched like bad Christian movies about Jesus, which was redundant, um, they're often like people in their 30s and 40s, and they have these like glue-on beards, and they're white, just like people were in the first century Middle East. And oftentimes, they're kind of this stoic group of people, but the disciples actually, in Jesus' day, it's a group that nobody would have put together. We know that one of the disciples was a tax collector, and tax collectors were not very well liked in the first century because they were seen as colluding with Rome, who was the oppressor, and oftentimes they were known for exploiting the poor and extorting people for their own gain. Jesus also had one of his disciples who was a zealot. A zealot was a guerrilla fighter for the people of Israel who believed that they were fighting evil in the name of God, and they actually took their name based on the small swords they would carry because they were pretty stealth, and at night they'd sneak up behind Roman soldiers and slit their throats. They hated Rome. You have a tax collector who's colluding with Rome and someone who's fighting against Rome. I mean, imagine if you were talking with someone today, and they're like, yeah, I'm putting together a team. It's going to change the world. Over here, I have my buddy, Roger, and Roger is a very hardline, Trump-voting, Republican, Fox News-watching person, and I cannot wait for him to meet Tom. Tom is a progressive, HuffPost-quoting individual who hates Donald Trump. They're going to change the world. What would go through your mind when you hear that? Probably something like, um, you're not paying attention very much, are you? This is just two of the disciples Jesus brought together, and I guarantee you that when Matthew, the tax collector, and when they were traveling with Jesus and they slept out at night, I don't think he slept very well, and he probably kept his eye on Simon the entire time. Beyond that, Jesus had one disciple who we later know betrayed him to a death, his death, another one denied him and abandoned him. I mean, when you look at the disciples, they're not actually like, stellar. We actually know that from history. History tells us that if the disciples were the best and the brightest, if they were stellar, if they were the ones that you would want on your team, that you wouldn't have called them. Because there was a formal education process in first century Israel, and typically you would start really young, and by the age of 12 or 13, you would either be someone who would go off to college, let's say, or you wouldn't. And the people who would go off to college would go and pursue rabbis, and rabbis would basically interview them to figure out if they had what it took to become like them. And if a rabbi saw someone or questioned someone or interviewed someone who he didn't believe could be like him, he would say, I'm sorry, go raise your children to study Torah, and you would go home and you would participate in the family business. There was no shame in it. All it meant was, you're not the best, you're not the brightest, and obviously you'll never have what it takes to become like a rabbi. Historians point out that when we meet the disciples in Jesus or in the Gospels, when Jesus is calling them, they're all plying a trade. 
which means they didn't make the cut. They weren't the best and the brightest. And not only that, but they didn't have to pursue Jesus and say, hey, am I good enough? Jesus is actually calling them, which is also a very rare occurrence according to history. Beyond this, depending on how you picture the disciples, and hopefully I'm ruining any picture of these great men of stature you have in your mind, there's a lot of themes that course through the Gospels. And one of those themes is failed discipleship or just the failure of the disciples. I mean, if you read the Gospels, even casually, you'll see like Jesus tells this story and the disciples are listening with everyone else. And then when the crowd goes away, they're like, I have no idea what that means. Or Jesus says to them things like, I'm going to be betrayed unto death and I'm inviting you to come with me. And one of them stands up and says, surely not, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, which in the original Greek is not a compliment. <laughs> There's this idea of like they continually, continually fail. There's one time where they're like, hey, Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we told them to stop. Should we call down fire on him? And Jesus is like, no. No, just let him, I mean, he's doing something good. Just carry on, calm down. Continually, they miss the point. And so when you come to these words, Jesus calls the 12 to himself and he sends them out. I think a lot of us today would be like, ah. I mean, have they gone through the training? How did that go? Were they, were they okay? One scholar actually said, these words do not inspire confidence. I read those words and I was reminded of the first job I had in a church almost 25 years ago, which is crazy to think about. I started when I was 11. <laughs> um, now, when I was invited by my mentor, a guy named Ed, to work at this church in Grand Rapids, Michigan all those years ago, there were some people who went to him and said, this does not inspire confidence. I was 23 years old, and Ed had this idea in his head of like who I could become, but other people had an idea of their head of who I was. You see, I grew up in that church, and um, in my middle school and high school years, I was the one everyone was praying for. Does that make sense? <laughs> and so when Ed announced that he had asked me to come work with him, I'm not kidding, people scheduled meetings with him to tell him why it was a bad idea. In other words, they were saying, this does not inspire confidence. We know who he is. So about a year into this, I think things had settled down just a little bit. I would preach on Sunday mornings like I do here, but there we had three services. And what I would do is one week I'd preach the first service, the following week I'd preach the second, and then the next week I'd preach the third, and I would just kind of cycle through that way. He was preaching one of three. And on one particular week, I was preaching the third service. And Ed got up on the platform and he prayed and led the congregation in prayer right before I got up. And then I was walking up to the platform, and usually he'd be walking back down to the front row, and oftentimes would give me a fist bump, a little, you know, go get him. But this time he finished praying, and he turned, and he like walked right out the back of the stage. And I thought, well, when nature calls, you know, I didn't know what was going on. So I started preaching, and as I'm preaching, I'm thinking the whole time, like I'm kind of scanning, like maybe he wanted to watch me from the crowd. Like, where is he? And I get further into the sermon and I'm looking around and he's nowhere. So then I get to the end of my sermon and I kind of look around, he's still nowhere, I pray. I sit down, I'm still kind of looking, nowhere. 
Ed was supposed to do the prayer at the end of the, the service, and so he doesn't show up. So I kind of run up there and do a prayer, and then the service concludes, and I like meet with people like I do now after the service, and Ed is still nowhere. So then I finally get to our offices, and I walk into his office, and he's gone. So the next day, I saw him and said, where did you go yesterday? He said, home. I said, why? He said, I didn't want to stay. I said, what was I supposed to do? He said, oh, I didn't even think about that. I knew you'd be fine. And there was something in that moment, even though people had gone on record as saying, I'm not sure about this guy, this doesn't inspire confidence, that when Ed said, I knew you'd be fine, it inspired confidence in me. To know that someone I looked up to, someone who I trusted, someone who I wanted to pattern my life after said, I think you'll be fine. I have confidence in you. I wonder if that's how the disciples felt. Like it says that Jesus sends them and he doesn't go with them. He doesn't follow up with them when they get into a village and be like, is everything okay? Here's an extra shirt. You're teenage boys. You definitely need one. You know, like, he doesn't go with them. He says to them, I'm giving you everything you need to the extent you don't need to bring anything with you. Just trust the generosity of other people and go. And they do. And it says that they preach and they heal and they do the work of the kingdom of God. Some of you may wonder, what is the kingdom of God? One way of thinking about it is this. The kingdom of God is just the proclamation or the news that God is radically available to and for everyone. Keep in mind, in Jesus' day, he lived in a very religious context which said, well, God is available as long as you adhere to these rules and as long as you have these specific beliefs and as long as you do these certain things on the right days in the right time. Then God's available. Jesus just came along and said, no, 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 the good news is this, God's available to everyone at all times, in all places. And if it's not good news for everyone, it's not good news for anyone. That's the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom is this, that God is restoring you and me in all things, that nobody is beyond redemption, nobody is beyond renewal, and that God gives everybody the same chance in the same number of chances, which is endless. Believing that grace and forgiveness and love and renewal, and re that's what will win. That's the good news that they went out to proclaim. And they didn't just go out there and talk about it, they embodied it in the way that they healed people and the way that they brought wholeness into the places that they were. They're off doing this and Jesus isn't with them. It says in one of the other gospels that they come back to Jesus and they're like freaking out. It actually says rejoicing. They're freaking out. They're stoked, we might say. Why? Because this first century Jewish Middle Eastern rabbi named Jesus said, I have confidence in you and I think you can do this. Jesus, in sending them, he sends them with the message but in sending them, Jesus also in some ways sends a message, doesn't he? In sending his disciples, what he's saying is, this kingdom that I want to build here on this earth is going to be built in you, and it's going to be built through you. 
In other words, I'm not going to be here forever to make sure this thing goes forward. He's sending a message to the world by sending his disciples. Because his disciples are the conduit, they're the channel of this kingdom that Jesus wants to bring into this world. We might say it this way, they are the medium or the platform of this message. And as Marshall McLuhan pointed out years ago, the medium is the message. The medium is the message. Meaning that whatever is being said, whatever the message is, is not as important as how it's being communicated. That the nature of the medium or the type of channel that you're sending a message through is actually more consequential than the message itself. Think about it this way. How many of you have a a favorite band? A few of you. How many of you, when you've been asked to raise your hand in a crowd, have never raised your hands? (laughs) How many of you, you heard this band for the first time, like on the radio or depending on your age, on a cassette tape or a phone or a computer? I'm trying to cover all of the different mediums. How many of you have heard, like you heard a recording of it the first time and you thought, these people, there was something about their lyrics something about the energy, something about the beat, you started listening to it, and the more you listened to them, the more you fell in love with them. How many of you, has this ever been the case? Yeah. And then the day comes where you hear they're coming into town, right? And you're like, oh, I cannot wait to get tickets. But then there's Ticketmaster. (laughs) So you take a second mortgage out on the house, and you decide, I'm going to see Taylor Swift. (laughs) Then you go and you have this one song that you absolutely, totally love. You know what I'm talking about? I was at a concert years ago at a little place called Red Rocks with my good friend Dave Newhousel, who is our executive director of Project Renew. And we went to see the killers and neither of them had ever seen, neither of us had ever seen them. Now, I don't know how well you know Dave, but Dave's a pretty easygoing guy. I'll say it that way. And we, they started playing and we were just enjoying it and soaking it in. And then they played Dave's favorite song. And he came absolutely unglued, cheering and yelling and screaming, hugging people, weeping on his knees, just losing his mind. Now the question is why? He had heard that song obviously probably 30, 40, 50 times. What changed? The medium. Same song, different platform, and it changes everything. You see, what changed was not the message that Jesus was preaching. What changed was the medium through which the message came, which was his disciples. And that said something. And before we can like even digest this, Luke then tells us, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch, and you hear like the Darth Vader music beginning to play, because he's speaking about Antipas, and Antipas was a horrible leader, He did so much evil. This was a guy who was consumed with gaining and maintaining power to the extent it ended up becoming his undoing. We know that Antipas, also called Herod the Tetrarch, had married a daughter of a foreign king for political reasons to maintain power. Sometime later, he ran into his stepbrother or his half-brother's wife, and he was like, oh, color me interested. And so he took her to be his wife. And it outraged the people in northern Israel, the place where he ruled, 
because he claimed to be Jewish, and they said this is against the law of God. And one of the loudest voices in condemning him was John the Baptist. And so Herod, like any leader who doesn't like when people speak against them, has him arrested and imprisoned, and he thinks, I'll just keep him there, but he's too afraid to execute him because the people like John the Baptist. And his plan's going well until one night he has a party, and at the party, he says to his friends, I'm going to have my stepdaughter come out and dance for you. If some of you are hearing this and you're like, this is so disturbing, good. If you're hearing this and you're like, "Mm, I want to hear how it ends, you should probably talk to someone. (laughs) His stepdaughter's dancing. Yep, that kind of dancing. For the guests. Then it says, Antipas is pleased with her dancing more disturbing, and says, I'll give you anything you want. And Herod's now wife says to her daughter, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Because why not? And so Herod, to try to impress the guests and kind of save face, it says he executes John the Baptist by beheading him, and his stepdaughter walks into the party with John's head on a platter. Instagram that. Like, how many of you, after a party, like the next day you're texting your friends, you're like, dude, that party was crazy. What do you say after that party? Man, I didn't see that one coming. (laughs) John drank a lot and lost his head, huh, too soon? You know, like that kind of thing. What do you say? This tells you the kind of person that Herod was. And many point out that this juxtaposition of Herod Antipas and these kids who are going out and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom is given to us because Luke's kind of tipping his hand about this is the template, this is the pattern, this is what Jesus is all about. Because if you read through Luke's gospel and then you read into the book of Acts, which he also wrote, what you begin to see is that this is the first time of many times that Jesus is giving power to his disciples, not doing what Antipas did, trying to keep the power, giving power in sending them and pitting these truth-telling prophets against arrogant kings. And what we know through Christian history is that the prophetic community always experiences the same end, and that is death at the hands of the powers. So much so that one scholar said, if the gospel you're preaching doesn't get you killed, you're probably not preaching the gospel of Jesus. This is the template, this is the pattern, this is what we see. We see Jesus empowering, we see Jesus sending. But what's interesting is, scholars say, well, this template, this pattern, it's not just for the disciples, because The gospel writers aren't writing to the disciples. They're writing about the disciples. They're writing to the church. That actually this story is a template. It's an invitation, if you will, to us. It's an invitation to us to recognize that we are still given power. We are still sent. We are still called to go and to embody this kind of life. That we are, if you will, the disciples who are living today. Stanley Hauervoss says it this way. He says, Christianity is not a philosophy that can be learned separate from those who embody it. If the truth that is Christ were a truth that could be known in principle, then we would not need apostles. But the way the gospel is known is by one person being for another person the story of Christ. 
Jesus summons the disciples to him, and so summoned, they become for us the witnesses who make it possible for us to be messengers of the kingdom. The disciples are not very impressive people, but then neither are we. Their mission, as well as our own, is not to call attention to ourselves, but to Jesus and the kingdom. Like what we see Jesus doing with the disciples is what Jesus is still doing today. Like you and you and you and you and you and you and me, like we together, we are God's plan A to put flesh and bone on the reality that God is bringing a whole new world to bear right here in the middle of this one. And there's no plan B. We, we might say, we are the medium. We are the medium of God's message. Now, you might be hearing that and thinking like, me? <laughs> I mean, do you, know who, do you know my story? Do you know about who I am? Do you know what's been said about me? Or maybe you might be going, we? Have you met my neighbor? Have you met my friend at work? Were the message? I mean, maybe, but her? Him? Were the message? Were the medium? Or maybe you hear that and you think, wait, wait, wait. Okay, I get it. We are, but that group of people? I mean, let's be honest. Not real sure they are. Maybe you look around at yourself. Maybe you look around at others. Maybe you look around at this crowd this morning. Maybe you look at the church in the, the United States or maybe the church in the world, and you go, yeah, that doesn't really inspire confidence. Okay. But maybe in the same way, others looked at the disciples and said, this does not inspire confidence. Maybe in the same way people looked at me when I was young and said, this does not inspire confidence. Maybe even as we're saying that of ourselves, Maybe we'll have the ears to hear God say, but I have confidence in you. You're still my plan to bring my healing and my hope and my renewal and my redemption and my reconciliation into the world. And there's no plan B. I had a conversation this week with someone who was telling me about growing up really, really um, fundamentalist and conservative. And he said, the biggest change in my life is he said, I used to be like super argumentative. I was really into defending the faith and I could convince anybody that they were wrong and get them to believe my way. And he said, but I, I realized like it wasn't producing in the world and in my friends and even in me what, what I think God wanted. And he said, so my wife and I have just decided we're just gonna do everything we can to love really, really well whenever the opportunity presents itself with this understanding that like in some way we can't explain that will be our message to the world. Well, this is exactly what Jesus said. What's the most important commandment? Love God, love others. What did Paul say to the church? The most important thing is faith expressing itself through a 10-point doctrinal statement that, it, no, the most important thing is faith expressing itself through love. I know people who would not identify as Christian that know this couple. And when you hear these people talk about them, you would almost swear 
they're talking about Jesus. Because they and you and me and us, we are the medium of the message. And maybe, maybe the reason that we're the medium of this message is because in all of our hypocrisy and in all of our bitterness and in all of our anger and in all of our in, in, or dishonesty, in all of the ways that we fail and in all of the ways that we're broken, maybe, maybe it's precisely because of that that God says, it's you that I want to go. It's you who in all of your failure have experienced this renewal and this redemption and this reconciliation within you and you now can go out and live that and show that and put that on display to anyone that nobody, nobody is outside the boundaries of my grace. Maybe it's just simply living as those who really understand love and have accepted it within us so that we can allow it to pass through us. Maybe that's the message. Because us being the medium for God's message, it does in fact say something. It says that in the midst of all of our failure and in all of our frailty, God still has the power to work in us and through us to bring God's restoration into the world. It says something to us. It says that in the midst of all of the ways you think you can't, that God says, no, I'll give you everything you need so that you can. It says to us that in the midst of all of the reasons we can find to say, not me, not us, it's impossible, I'm a failure, I'm too broken, that Jesus comes along and says, no, you're exactly the kind of person that I want to carry my message into the world because I have confidence in you. Let's pray together. God, I ask that you would give us eyes to see the ways in which you believe in us, in the ways that you trust us, in the ways that you have confidence in us, so that in seeing that it might inspire confidence in each of us to recognize you invite us not to be a part of but central to the building of your kingdom to bring your renewal and redemption into this world. For those of us who think too small when it comes to this faith of ours, who think it's all about just doing a few right things, would you open our eyes to recognize we are invited into something so much bigger? Thank you for inviting us, giving us this responsibility and believing in us so that we can know and be inspired with confidence. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus. And all my friends said, amen.